Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Hello boys and girls, and a very warm welcome to the annual Exton Moss Experiment filler episode. Yes, this is where we get away with it on the cheap, and bring you all the sweepings from the cussing room floor over the past 12 months, bandaged together, and made to sound vaguely presentable. The first batch of deleted scenes comes from our podcast on the Channel 4 drama series It's a Sin by Russell T. Davis, which Simon was delighted to find was episode 69. The recording session also featured Alan Fogg, Paul Owlsrush, and a lot of gin, which is why the raw runtime was over three hours. So as the night wore on, the banter became more innuendous and drunk. Brace yourselves. Oh, what are the other two characters' names? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> they just all... Oh, God, I feel so bad about this. Google I want to say Desmond, and it wasn't Desmond. Desmond. What, because he's black? I'll edit that out. <laughs> No, because his name begins with a D. Derek? No, he wasn't Derek. <laughs> <laughs> you get me to say that deliberately. Roscoe. It's almost entirely inaccurate. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. First off, <laughs> it, it's kind Desmond. of... Desmond. <laughs> <laughs> Why not just bloody Winston or something and I've done... <laughs> For fuck's sake. Sorry, the gin's kicking in. <laughs> oh, it and, is here, don't worry. And he did kind of look like a lad I went to school with called Desmond. So. <laughs> I think it depends on the couple. We've got friends as well that, you know, like us, we are monogamous. And we've got some friends which are... Alan, um, Alan, just start that again because I coughed right when you said that. It sounds like <laughs> I was taking the piss. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <coughs> And the other thing that I have always found, and actually even pre-medicine, is the amount of support that I get without asking for it from the people that I work with. So oh. I remember when I was in Belfast and I'd gone to, there was a Christmas due at the insurance company I worked with. We were having a great time and one of the lads got chucked out. He wasn't paramilitary, but he was, he was very close to the paramilitaries and had a very quick temper. Really, really nice bloke. And so it wasn't a massive surprise to anybody that after quite a lot of pints, he'd got kicked out. And he met up with us afterwards and uh, we went on to the pub. And it turned out that the reason that he got kicked out was because somebody from one of the other Christmas groups that was was there was making some homophobic comments about me. And he decked them. Oh, wow. Oh, and I, I didn't know anything about this, this at all. When I went to say, well, basically, thank you, but it wasn't necessary. I got as far as the, the thank you. And he said, right, OK, conversation stops here. Buy me a pint. We're, we're, we're sorted. Many pints later, we actually had a proper conversation about it. And as far as he was concerned, he was protecting somebody who was part of the tribe he was he was out with at, at that time. And he would have done the same with anybody making arsey comments about one of the girls or or any kind of derogatory comment about any of the other, other members of staff. He tended to solve problems with his fists. And he regarded people being difficult to me as a problem that he needed to solve. That was late 90s Belfast. That, that was post-Good Friday Agreement, but not by very much. Yeah, each, each to their own on this one in terms of what they take away from it and, what, and how it strikes a chord. Yeah, I, I think it, it's... I... I oh. <laughs> Why am I just saying vowels? <laughs> Irritable vowel syndrome. Yeah. Would you mind telling us what the original story is about? 
it's basically the same story, but from a slightly different perspective. Is it just two men like rotting stags? Basically. Um, shall we get back to It's a Sin rather than... Oh, Rotten no, let's, let's get back to rotting stags. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness me. Do you need a moment? Oh. <laughs> I'll be three minutes. Two if I keep my hat on. Right, no, I, I, I think we we might be reaching the apotheosis of the analysis of It's a Sin. Um, oh God, are, are we? Because I, I suspect I have other things to say. What, what, what else haven't we talked about? Oh God, um, here we go. I don't, Rev- think, I don't think I've ever heard the word apotheosis <laughs> <laughs> in a podcast quite, before. No, yes, quite and the by that. yes, the Golden I, Globe I, I, for the first word of the. I don't think it means the... what Ken thinks it means, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because it doesn't mean the end. <laughs> no, it means the absolute. Oh, anyway, forget all this. Just finish a king point. <laughs> I've forgotten what the point was. Preferably in this <laughs> lifetime. This is where the intermission music kicks in. Well, okay, this is where we're all just saying things just to annoy Ken when he's editing it. <laughs> just, <laughs> <laughs> like dragging out. <laughs> and welcome to podcasting. <laughs> I really... <laughs> I'm trying to say this series. This is a ve- this is a serious podcast. I've been invited on to give my serious when? opinion. And I get the feeling that you lot are just not taking it seriously. When did that happen? <laughs> You're cheating on us with other podcasts. I, I, I Typical gay. <laughs> That's what we do, isn't it? Promiscuity, <laughs> listening to other podcasts behind my back. I am quite open about it. What a listen about <laughs> just, you are. Just like all the gays. <laughs> I think there are interesting characters that were completely swept under the carpet, and I'm completely thinking about Ash in this. You don't learn anything about him at all. No. Right. Pause. I am speaking as a straight man here. He is the most beautiful thing in it. Yes. Yes, he is. 100% agreed. So is this a problem, or is it a problem? Bear with me two seconds. Bear with me two seconds. Oh, hang on, headset's going. He's off for a quick comfort break. Yes, comfort break. <laughs> <laughs> it Just, happens to us all when we think of Ash. I, I have more to say. <laughs> Just say bye now. Bye now. Bye. I, I, I haven't mentioned trans people once in this podcast. I'm hitting oh. the space bar at the end. Episode 71 covered the Doctor Who story The Stones of Blood and was released nearly two years after it was recorded. A short clip explaining the Drag Queen Index was trimmed out, as by this point it was already well established. Uh, on Simon's request we have a new segment. <sighs> Cue the jingle. I am Persian. Name your price. Yes, and that's it's true. We have got... Siri Van Epp. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <coughs> her very own self. And who more important to introduce our new segment of the Drag Queen Index? Now we we started this this off uh, a couple of stories ago as drag queen, drag queen of the week, but came to realize, I mean, particularly when we did Galaxy Four, that there may be more than one character. Yeah. Um, so we have a, a Drag Queen Index, which is how. How many Olvias? <laughs> How many Olvias does the story win? The Tonic Screwdriver Gin Reviews also run as a separate bite-sized podcast series for those who aren't aware, and several episodes have featured Simon's younger sister, Sam. 
In this deleted clip during a review of Bivrost Arctic Gin, the siblings discuss their respective doctorates. It's quaffable. Good word, quaffable. Mm, should be in a quaffing horn. I can do that. I have a drinking horn. Oh, God, the, the universe has only just managed him to get, get to the Victorian era. Don't be dragging him any further back. Yeah, but it's Viking. We like the Viking. Viking power with the quaffing horns. This is a good thing to be embraced. Thank you, Dr. Exton. In stereo. Oh, there's only there, one Dr. Exton here. Well, you're twice Dr. Exton. Oh, that's true. I'm a Ten. once Dr. Exton and a once Dr. McBride. So there's three Doctors Exton and one McBride. If well, you're going to be a little bit pedantic. Well, if you're going to be pedantic, our medical degrees are honorary degrees and don't confer a formal title. Well, of course, we're doing funny ears in the air when we say the word doctor. <laughs> I'm not proud of PhDs, we're not. That's a formal doctorate. That's how come I'm right. Dr. Exton, but not Dr. McBride, without yeah. the bunny ears. Yes. And um, you are. And that's why we have published books in the British Library. God, and I hope no poor bastard ever tries to read them. In July 2021, we had a bit of a revamp, new recording equipment installed, and a completely new logo. To go with this, I tested out a new version of the theme music, which Dr. Exton hated. So for the first and only time, here is the unused version. The Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in wine and space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Episode 81 was one of several Pride specials this year, and again we were joined by Alan Fogg and Paul Lyles Rush. Lots of drink was consumed, and the recording session got increasingly silly and slurry, culminating in a gin review where I not only forgot what podcast we were recording, but also how to talk in my own voice. For those of a nervous disposition, please turn away now. Hello, boys and girls, and it's time for the Pride Special Part 2, 2021. What we're watching? Christopher and his kind, you lovely bastards. <laughs> so, Sophie Ellis Baxter is 42 years old. It's the one for the wank bank later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think she's about 10 years younger than I am. She's way, way off limits. Uh, no, 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 no. And, uh, shall we proceed to these? Uh, oh, good grief. Doesn't she have teenage children? It still doesn't mean that 10 years younger oh, is often... Google it's how old Sophia is. Listen, I don't date people five years younger than me. It really. Please don't Google <laughs> Sophie Ellis-Bexter. She's off limits. If only if somebody were sitting in front of some kind of computer, computer. that could help. <laughs> oh, for fuck's sake, but, open the door we, to the Imaginarium. We're, cu- we're curious now. Punching well above one's weight. Anyway. She would be. And, <laughs> still, her mum, though. <laughs> Mum got to do it apart from producing it. She's a Blue Peter presenter. Oh, really? Can't tell us. Yeah. Oh, bloody hell! I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. And she was in Doctor Who, The Horns of Gammon. That's my uh, pick for this week. What are you? T- uh, stop it! Turn off the gay. We uh, don't really have a choice well, about that. <laughs> <laughs> Which are very offensive, Ken? I oh, know you bastards. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure because tell me. I, I, the two of us are sat here, one gay, one not gay, and both saying it's almost inevitable. The Doctor and Yaz are going to let it up based on 
indicators that have been placed in the New Year's special that were never there before. Yeah. If, if it had been a female doctor and a female companion in the Stephen Moffat era, or even the Russell T. Davis era, the Russell T. Davis era, <laughs> for Canal, I can't turn off... Russell I, I couldn't, I can't turn off the scouse. Hello, boys and girls, and a very, very warm welcome. Ooh. Oh, no, no, no. No, it's a bit, it's a, that really is a bit Jimmy Savile. <laughs> Hello, boys and girls, and another warm welcome to another edition of the Jimmy Savile Experience. You see, uh, looking at me tonight is a warm and wet bottle of Le Tribute Gin. Warm and wet? Is that, is that out of your system? <laughs> can't, turn, can't turn it off, right? <laughs> Hello, boys and girls, and welcome to another... No. Hello, boys and girls, and a very warm welcome to another edition of the... Tonic Screwdriver. That's the one, Tonic Screwdriver. <laughs> Good evening, boys and girls, and a very warm welcome to another edition of the Extermos Experiment with my from the tonic screwdriver. own teeth. <laughs> fucking hellfire. What have you been pouring down my fucking neck tonight? Gosh, the fives have outweighed the fours. Yes, by, by... Do you mean the way averages work? <laughs> that whole pesky mathematics thing. <laughs> That's what I say. Don't start that one. He'll beat your hands down. <laughs> with <laughs> <his brain>. <laughs> <laughs> During the same session, we did a batch of standalone tonic screwdriver episodes, but it was obviously a very popular day for equestrians, and recording was interrupted several times by passing horse riders. Alcohol-free spirit made with distilled botanicals. And the info bollock says, <laughs> how many fucking horses are there? It's like a Monty Python. <laughs> marching band goes past. I feel sorry for all these nags and, you know, these fat fucking chavs on the back of them with you know, curvature of the spine. Episode 82 focused on the John Pertwee Doctor Who story, Death to the Daleks, and was another recording which had already been in the can for a couple of years. In this clip, we hear the birth of the now infamous tonic screwdriver term, info bollocks. I don't get this sort of review with my other drinking partners. They don't talk, talk about peaty afternoons. No, the, I just got a, a, a nice, raw, unadulterated, honest review. Man, to be fair, you don't go into such uh, avuncular raptures that the little tasters do with the... What do you call them? Who are we talking about? The, the, the I, little, I call lots of people no, lots of different no, the, things, the, not all of which are repeatable. The cars, what did you call them? Something bollocks. The, what did you call it this morning? Oh, I, don't, I don't know. I've had a drink since then. Oh, um, info bollocks. Info bollocks, yeah. Yes, I'm getting undertones of crushed tarmac mixed in with a whale omelette. Um, mm. Episode 85 was our Halloween edition, looking at the BBC Three series The Fades. During the Black Archive segment, we wandered off down another rabbit hole and ended up talking about missing episodes of Blue Peter. And I, I guess thinking about the, the archive situation, as long as you've got a, a few representative examples, then you possibly wouldn't need a, every single one. No. In the same way as you don't need every edition of Paper Play, but it's quite nice to have mm. representative ones. A more magazine-y type programme like Blue Peter or Magpie I think there's value in keeping the lot because you never know which little interview they do is going to be of future interest. Well, there's been plenty of Doctor Who related items. Yeah. Um, and because it had the same producer for such a long time, Blue Peter has been really, really well archived. I think she was quite insistent, Miss yes. Baxter, that they were kept. 
BBC archiving policy was that any producer could ask to keep their programmes. But because producers cycled from one mm. programme to the next, they didn't necessarily have an awful lot of interest in what they'd done before. So they they never bothered with the paperwork to, uh, to keep mm. it. Whereas Biddy Baxter, because she was staying on that, that one programme, was insistent that her archive um, was kept. Yeah, she was at it for a long time. It was 40, 50 years yeah. she was at it. I don't think she was the first producer, was she? I think she was. Oh, was she? Fairly sure. Uh, with Christopher Trace, I think. With Christopher Bigger. Trace and Layla Williams. Was That's it? right, yes. Because the earlier stuff, there are quite significant archive gaps. And in fact, isn't there one of the presenters that doesn't have a, a single surviving... One, one of the earliest presenters didn't last terribly long, and I think she was sacked. And I don't, I don't think she has a, a single surviving... Ah, over 5,000 editions have been produced since 1958, and almost every episode from 1964 still exists in the archives. It was, it was created by Billy Baxter. And presumably once telerecording was, because it, it would it would have gone out as live. Mm. Once telerecording was easily available, that's when she started archiving. But uh, there are earlier exi- editions that exist. I think there are some of the Christopher Trace stuff. Yeah, Layla Williams was fired because uh, didn't get on with a, the, a temporary producer and somebody called Anita West that, that was in just 16. That That's the one that I was thinking of. And Ah, right, Biddy Baxter. It was developed by a team headed by Biddy Baxter, but she didn't become producer until 1962. And does it say how much of the pre-1964 exists? No. Oh, we can do a little bit of research on that. Is it still going? Yes, it's still going. We are now segueing massively. We are. Episode 86 was a commentary on Peter Capaldi's last story as Doctor Who, Twice Upon a Time. And in the preamble, we had one of our many discussions about the Chris Chibnall era. During the edit, it all sounded a bit negative and just dragged out the running time, so it was chopped. I mean, I I was talking at work about about Doctor Who, and there's about three or four of us that watch sort of genre stuff. We talk about Discovery of Witches and Lucifer and things, and uh, I've never really talked to them about Doctor Who because I I didn't imagine it would be any of their interest. And there were a couple of them that said, yeah, we we loved it with David Tennant, we loved it with with Matt Smith. Peter Capaldi was okay. And and have stopped watching it with Jodie Whittaker. I have heard so many people say the same thing. There are casual viewers, there are new Who fans, they've come on board from 2005. And whatever snobbery exists out there between new Who fans and classic Who fans, I couldn't give a toss about any of that. If you're a fan of the show, you're a fan of the show. And new Who is now 15 years old. It's 15 years old. Well, 16 at the time of recording. But I, there's so many people that I know have stopped watching with Jodie Whittaker. Yeah. And this is nothing to do with the fact, that, and I'll keep coming back to this over and over, it's nothing to do with the fact that she's a woman. Because I was really open to the fact. I went into yeah. it with an open mind, as you did. With an open mind, the fact is Jodie Whittaker has been terribly served as Doctor Who. Yeah, and I still have an open mind about her as the Doctor, but I don't think she's had a very good story. I think she's had some good stories. So Villa Diodati I thought was great. Nikola Tesla I thought was great. Not classic, but very good stories. Ascension of the Cybermen. Ascension of the Cybermen I absolutely loved. It did something really powerful with the Cybermen that's not been done since Earthshock, really. But then it was followed up with the other half of that. Two-part story. Um, elements of attack in there as well. The whole bit about the Lytton cyberization. Yeah, it, it was just... It was the Cybermen being genuinely frightening for the first time in a very, very long time. Yeah. So there, there's been the, a few high points, but 
realistically, would you say Villa Diodati was of the same quality as Twice Upon a Time? No, nothing. And this is Nikola this Tesla is the same quality as, as Blink. Don't be ridiculous. There's nothing in the whole Chibnall run. I can't see anybody that is a long-term fan. This is a classic. This is one of the my top ten favourite episodes of all time. I just can't see it. Yeah. Now, there will be a group of fans for whom Jodie Whittaker will become their doctor because... And rightly so. She was the first... And if that's you, fantastic. I am delighted for you. But you've not had her best served. Yeah. Um, all all um, the other doctors have had their ups and downs, but they've always had that moment. And it comes back to the same thing for me. There are flashes that you'll get the odd line. And Jodie Whittaker does deliver them very well. The one that leaps to mind is, uh, what was the last episode she was in? Revolution of the Daleks, where she lures them all into the TARDIS, the Daleks. And she stood there as a hologram. Oh, mate, you fell for the old switcheroo. And that, that was Jodie Whittaker's moment for me, where she had command of the situation. She's had two series by this point, and it took her that long to have a moment for me. And I just think if she'd been given some really cracking dialogue, she could have been up there with the best. As it stands, she's going to be languishing in sort of 11th, 12th, 13th place, and it's unfair. And had she had something like Midnight... She would have been perfect in Midnight. Or any of those David Tennant very animated performances, Mm. because she can put in an animated performance when when she has one written for her. That whole conversation with Sky Silvestri where she starts mirroring him and then they're in sync and then he starts mirroring her. If you did that with Jodie Whittaker, it wouldn't just be the verbal mirror. It would be kind of a physical mirror mm-hmm. as well. That would have been brilliant. So I cannot, uh, at the time of recording again, we've not had the 60th anniversary yet. We've got Russell T. Davis coming back. I cannot for the life of me imagine, even though she will have on screen or just left... I can't imagine they don't have Jodie Whittaker in the 60th. The other thing is, at the time of recording, we haven't seen anything of Flux. Yes, it, it, start, it literally starts tomorrow night. So here we are. Big screen, 5.1. We are going to watch The Majesty that is Peter Capaldi's last episode. Now, I am a big, big fan of Peter Capaldi. Of the New Who Doctors, he is my favourite one. I think it's still tenant for me. Peter Capaldi, when he's... Again, when he's given good stuff to do, he's very good. But I don't think the quality of his stories was as high as the quality of Tennant's stories. Mm. Kill the Moon, In the Forest of the Night, they are appalling. I'd love to disagree with that. Um, no, I mean, all the Doctors have had uh, high points and low points. I think you're quite right. Tennant was of a consistent standard. Eccleston was pretty much of a consistent standard. I mean, people talk talk about Boomtown being a low point. It's a comparative low point. It's still a good story. Uh, I don't think it's as... It's a comparative low yeah. point, yeah. Whereas Capaldi, when you give him something like Horror on the Orient Express... Oh, Mummy on the Orient Express. Oh, sorry, Express. Mummy on the Orient Express. Horror on the Orient Express is something completely different. The Caretaker. I love The Caretaker. We don't I know, talk about The Caretaker. I know that we don't talk about The Caretaker for reasons that you will... Uh, Adam Brace at some point, but he had some... Ri- and I know you don't like Deep Breath. Even though you don't like the story, style over substance at the very least. The Clockwork Robots have always been really pretty. Both stories they turn up in, they look great, but they're both terrible stories. But again, Capaldi's a good example. He might have had an up-and-down run, but even when he's given an underpass story, and there were a couple, Kill the Moon, God Almighty, who, who greenlit that? Couldn't Stephen Moffat, seriously, mate. That is definitely your Nadir. 
Oh, you see, I thought In the Forest of the Night was worse than Kill that the was, Moon. That was terrible. But it's kind of, they're kind of vying with each other. The thing is, In the Forest of the Night is a nice idea, but you just cannot do it justice on screen. It's too big a concept to, even with you know 21st century CGI, it's too big a concept to do justice. It's like Ravelox in and Trial of a Time Lord. It's an unbelievably terrible concept. Um, It's not. It's just you can't do it justice on screen. Yes, but even if you had the best CGI in the in the world, the moon is an egg is still a bloody silly idea. Let's kill the moon. I'm talking about in the forest of oh, the right, night. Oh, okay. right, yeah. In the night garden. Oh. In the forest of the night, in a different program, it would work. So if you had, say, a six-part purely fantasy series... Yes, agreed. ...where science is completely thrown out of the window, that whole ecological reset thing would work. But you're not working in that. You are working in science fiction. And you can do fantasy-themed stuff, but you need to keep a basis in scientific reality. And that's one of those stories that just says, fuck it, I can't be bothered to fit this into any kind of known science, so I'm the writer, up yours. And it doesn't work. It doesn't. It doesn't. Boys and girls, this is pre-flux, so we shall be sitting down to uh, enjoy it tomorrow night, as will everybody else. Uh, We're hoping for something better. But if it turns out not to be... I won't. You're busy tomorrow night. Yes, I'm going to the theatre. The theatre? Oh, darling. I'm going to see Fascinating Aida. Really? Yes. I haven't seen them live in years and years and years. Oh, if you've not seen Fascinating Aida, boys and girls. I've even persuaded Alan to come along. He's got to find that amusing. Oh, yes, I played him the... The cunt song. Try Not To Be A Cunt, It's Christmas song, which he thought was hilarious. And then the dogging song, and that just sold it. If none of you have heard of Fascinating Aida, kids, go out and Google it. You will not, not be disappointed. Fascinating Aida. Episode 88 was our first crossover edition with Blackout and Dr. Velvet, the boys from the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour podcast. In this brief deleted clip, Dr. Exton educates us all on the British X-Men. British uh, X-Men was Excalibur, wasn't it? Excalibur? Yeah. That was, that was the British version of the X-Men. Is it? Was it? I didn't know that. They had a dragon and everything, called Lockheed. Okay. <laughs> we have a gap in the right. knowledge here, but... <laughs> yeah, but you don't read comics, and I did. <laughs> Originally, the Halloween special was going to cover Late Night Story, which was an anthology series that ran over two seasons of five episodes from 1978 to 1979. Series one, which was the one we were going to watch, was read by Tom Baker and consisted of macabre bedtime stories, while series two was war stories read by John Mills. However, we discovered very quickly that it was dull as shit. Not once to waste good material, though. Here are the intro and Black Archive segments were recorded for the episode. Hello, everyone, and a very warm welcome to the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And a happy Halloween to all of you at home. Ooh, indeed. Well, Dr. Exton, what are we watching this time? Can't remember. <laughs> well, I'll tell you. It's Late Night Story from 1978. It was a six-part sort of adult Jack and Ori, if you will. Quarter of an hour episodes, read by Tom Baker. Quite a simplistic format. Uh, These were sort of 12, 15-minute stories, short stories written by various people and uh, just read directly to camera in a set very reminiscent of uh, Sarah Jane's living room from K9 and Company. 
But before we come on to review these, we shall descend into the undergallery and open up the Black Archive. Dr. Exton, what are you rescuing from the annals of lost TV history this week? Bearing in mind that we're going to be looking at something by Tom Baker himself, and he doesn't have any missing episodes of Doctor Who apart from a tiny fragment of one story, I'm going to go for the first TV credit that he had, which is a BBC soap opera, ran between 1967 and 1969, called The Market in Honey Lane. And it's a soap opera set in an East End market following the lives of Cockney vendors. So basically, oh. it's a it's a proto-East Enders created by Louis Marx of Plants of the Giants and fame. Isn't this the one where some old lady asks him a question, he's dressed as a railway porter or something, and he leans down and he gives a response in the most over-the-top way? I'm sure that clip exists. There are episodes of it that exist, but I think most of it is missing. It has other famous alumni, such as Ray Lonnan, who was uh, the Sandbaggers, Gabriel Wolfe, so Sutek himself. Sutek himself. Right, well, I am going to rescue Fraggle Rock. (gasps) Fraggle Rock. Now, this was a Jim Henson production from 1984, I think. And... um, the lighthouse keeper in the English version was played by Fulton Mackay with his little dog Sprocket and the British inserts were filmed at uh, the TVS studios in Southampton. But the original North American version that was filmed in Toronto, that was instead of a lighthouse keeper, it was an inventor named Doc and that was played by Jerry Parks. He also had a dog called Sprocket. But it's the British versions that are missing. Twelve of them still exist, but there are 84 of the British versions still missing with those inserts. And it's Fulton Mackay. So, yeah, I'd really, really like to see those back. I think you've got a bit of a soft spot for Fraggle Rock, have you? I absolutely loved Fraggle Rock. It was one of the staples of me growing up, was Fraggle Rock, and I can still remember the episode. I don't know whether you remember, there was a nightclub on Lytham Front called Scruples, and it burned down. I can still remember the episode of Fraggle Rock that was playing the morning after when the news report came on, because we'd been on Lytham Front the night before. Oh, vaguely. I mean, the the nightclub I I remember from Blackpool was Barney Rubbles. It was this dreadful, skanky rock club that it used to cost 50p to get in. Jesus. That must have been cheap even then. Yep. Oh, yeah, it was. It was just over the other side of the car park near the... I think it was near Central Station. But it was just over the other side of the car park from the Flying Handbag. Oh, all these. I've got very fond memories of Blackpool in the 80s, which... Oh, this, this would have been 90s for me. I mean, Blackpool, for those of you that have never been or... Blackpool's deeply shit, but in that beautifully good way that you just get tempted by it all the time because it's so tacky and it's so grubby and it's so cheap that you're just drawn to it. It's a brilliant night out. I love Blackpool. Yeah, I, I, I think you're... I think you're damning the Illuminations with faint praise because <laughs> when I was a kid, the Illum- the Blackpool Illuminations were a massive, massive deal. Oh, yeah, they still are. I've got to admit, uh, I've not done it for a few years, 
But there's still something about driving through the illuminations, even now. Getting fish and chips on the drive home, brilliant. And the one thing that I miss, and the one thing that leaps out of me from my childhood is a long way off Fraggle Rock now, but the driving past the Central Pier and the North Pier and seeing all the big names that were on there. So you had your Danny LaRue's and your Keith Harrison Orville, you know, the Ken Dodd laughter show, whatever it was, the Grumbleweeds. All of these massive acts are all gone now. And it's a very, very nostalgic period of history for me. Yeah, and wasn't there mid-70s? Weren't the Illuminations turned on by Tom Baker and Elizabeth Sladen? Yes, I think it was before they'd even appeared, I think. Because there is, uh, there's an interview with one of them on one of the DVDs. And so he must have, well, Elizabeth Sladen, obviously everybody knew, but I don't think they knew Tom Baker. So Doctor Who was there to switch them on before an episode had been shown. I think I could be wrong about that. But certainly one of the Doctor Who's turned up to switch on the Illuminations before they appeared on screen. I think it was him. But footage does exist, I think. I seem to remember him driving up in Bessie. The memory might cheat there. The TARDIS wiki. Yes. Blackpool Illuminations, Doctor Who. Well, it's had its chance and it's lost it, frankly. (laughs) Um, Right, so shall we leave Spaff to his little kingdom down here? We should, really, with the... I worry about what he's doing in the corners. To round us off, we have a single episode Doctor Who commentary that we recorded one night in May, just because we felt like it. Simon, what are we watching today? Well, what we're going to watch today is something that's going to be fairly familiar to any fan of British archive television. And we're going to watch the single surviving episode of the last Doctor Who series that has any missing episodes. And that's episode two of The Space Pirates. All personnel, this is General Fanak. It is my belief that the criminals are attacking the government navigation eagle and plundering the Argonite. There can be no other explanation for its failure. Hunt them down and don't forget. Shoot to kill. But I don't know. We're worse off now. Just floating hopelessly in space. What a silly idiot I am. Jamie, no! Not generally regarded as a classic, but you and I have a different opinion on this, don't we? Do we? Do you not like it? No. I mean, to the rest of fandom. Oh, right. Okay. Because uh, I was going to say, I I quite like this. And I think it's one of those episodes like Enemy of the World was before it was recovered, where it's just seen as a bit dull. But when you look at it in the context of the whole story, it's actually pretty good. I suspect the Space Pirates will be very similar on the happy day that we actually get to see all of it. It would be nice. I mean, I've I've never particularly had a downer on it. Uh, I do remember once at a convention asking Mark Ayres what his favourite and least favourite audios were to work on. I can't remember what his favourite one was, but he certainly said his least favourite was the Space Pirates, which he thought was completely dull. As far as I'm concerned, that's eclipsed completely by Celestial Toymaker. But I imagine once you've listened to it a few dozen times, 
the plot becomes fairly irrelevant and you're listening to the, to what's going on in the background. Mm. Uh, or he might to... like the Celestial Toymaker more than he likes the Space Pirates. People are allowed to be wrong. So, it's time, without further ado, for Space Pirates Episode 2. <laughs> bit of trivia the space pirates is the only missing story that i was actually alive for oh it's because you were born during the crotons i was that title sequence reminds me of the drive into my down the street towards my house uh, when it rains and you drive towards it with headlights on the puddles <laughs> reflect onto the end terraced house and make the title sequence of Patrick Troughton on the wall, obviously without his face. But I think of that every time. Now, this is the first episode of Doctor Who that was recorded away from Lime Grove. It was recorded at BBC Television Centre, and the first one actually, well, I think the only one actually, recorded on 35mm film. I know there were a number of episodes that were transmitted from 35mm film, which is why they survived, so things like Wheel in Space 6, and there were a couple of episodes that were transmitted from 35mm that don't survive, so I, I think that's Wheel in Space 5 and Power of the Daleks 6. Well, this was actually recorded on 35mm film. Uh, and therefore, apparently, that's why it was retained for historical significance. So were three to six not recorded on 35 mil? Not on 35 mil, no. I mean, the picture quality on this is fantastic. It's very, very good. Isn't that what you were going to say? Something like that, yeah. Jack May. You see, I know him best from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which was only what, 12 years after this. Really? Yeah. And he aged considerably in that time. If we could just locate one of the pieces, that would be looking for a single speck of dust to the bottom of an Argonite mine. Early mention of Argonite? Do you think there's any chance they're still alive out there? When does it get mentioned again? Oh, it, it's kind of throughout the story. But... See, all these film inserts, they exist in very high quality. Hey, up! Oh, it just, that angle just looked like Jamie had his head right between Zoe's legs there. I was going to say, are you get, getting distracted by Zoe's leg? Oh, every time. Now, if that's supposed to be a military uniform, it's a fairly ridiculous one, but... That's one of the old C-class freighters, sir. I didn't know they were still flying. Now, Milo Clancy is very much a love-or-hate character. Gotta say, I've always been in the love camp. Uh, Played by Gordon Gostolo. Is he singing over the rainbow? Yes, he is. A very, very bad version of it. Oh, boiled egg on toast. They've still got, well, very burnt toast. Solar toasters. What else has he got on that tray? A boiled egg. Bread? Yeah, which would be toast. So why does he need the toaster? And three black containers that are empty a massive, massive knife and a cruet. And if he's got bread, why the toaster thing? 
But we may be drilling into that. Oh, I don't. Where's he getting what, his fresh bread from? And what's hanging off his wrist? Neckerchief. He has a neckerchief. He's got a weird fragment of a hanky thing. Have you heard of the hanky code? <laughs> now, I have to say that yes, I do. I was told about this many, many years ago. Yeah. There Is you it? go. Are you trying to say that Milo Clancy may not be entirely straight? I have no idea. But I have heard of the hanky coat uh, a little bit before my time. But he's terribly RP. He's terribly. I believe uh, Jack May was actually Scottish. More than a touch of the Paulers. <laughs> he was born in Henley on Thames and went to school in Walthamstow. Uh, then. War service in India and went to Merton College in Oxford. So, no, not Scottish. Not Scottish at all. I'm going to mix it with somebody else. Zoe has got cracking legs. Yeah, look a bit skinny to me, but... This is playing out very much like an episode one rather than a part two. Yeah, except they've done the whole find the space beacon and get separated from the TARDIS and... Has he always had the knees out of his trouser? It was only when we did the war games that I realised that his, uh, his knee was ripped to bits. And uh, I think one of the pockets on his jacket is ripped as well. Yeah. But it wasn't always like that, no. Can't have been very comfortable to act in. It used to bug the hell out of me. When I, when I was a kid and I used to have rips in the knees of my jeans and things. A whole floating fun palace, he says, wearing his spangly pleather pants. And the hanky coat, so... There are so many phenomenal moustaches in this. <laughs> it's like being on Canal Street, isn't it? He's lost five floaters. <laughs> oh, stop it! <laughs> That's quite a moustache, and that extra in the background has quite a moustache, and the navigator has quite a moustache. He had a full load of floaters. There's a lot of set wandering going on in order to liven up the scene. But the set looks fantastic. It does. They're unmanned. They don't move very fast. I know that. Hey, is it all right if I blow my nose or is that another offence? Why are they looking so offended about the fact that he's blowing his nose? I can't get used to all your fancy air conditioning. Yes, well, that's a pity you can't see it, but I'm afraid you'll have to put up with it a bit longer. Uh, I'll tell you something. I'd rather watch this a dozen uh, times over well, than sit yeah. through the Celestial uh, Toymaker. Actually, all the gunfighters. And I know we've done the, the gunfighters. Right. Yeah, the gunfighters wasn't exceptional in terms of uh, keeping people amused. Oh, did they solve? Milo Clancy's got a, a much more convincing American oh, accent than anyone in the Gunfighters. This is clearing up a whole heap of things in my head. I can lose every floater I've got in your fancy space corps. Won't do a thing about it. <laughs> one government beacon, now that you've put the floaters thing in my head. If there is any truth in your story, Clancy, we do catch up with the pirates, you'll be entitled to put in a claim for compensation. <laughs> Well, if I waited for you to catch these critters, I'd catch for death a cold. Again, I think this is probably an episode where 
it's not a great episode in possibly quite a fun story. And if it was Space Pirates 4 or 5 that survived, then that's quite a moustache in the background. It's very Willy Thorne, isn't it? I'm, I'm coming down. Look out. Well, what's on the other side? Can you see? I'm afraid that there's nothing on the other side, just space. Hmm? But if, are you sure? Of course I'm sure. Get up and look for yourself. Why has she been given a scuba suit to wear? I'm not complaining. We'll do a costume to the waist and below that, yeah, we'll not bother about it. I do now know what Jamie Sporin's for. It's for um, concealment. And they're all moving along together. But as you know, Jamie, when something explodes in space, all the pieces separate and go on separating indefinitely. This sequence here with Troughton doing his exposition, it's another example of acting your socks off with the poor material that you're given. This is... Yeah. A bit of a non-scene, really. And yet, they're keeping us entertained. That's because you have three people on, on screen who are, all three of them, extremely good at what they do. And Wendy Padbury not saying anything, acting her little socks off. Compare that to Katerina. Yeah, what did you put it? Face in neutral. I believe that was the expression, yes. Or a woman at CNA. I would have put him to the mind probe. The mind probe. <laughs> so, oh, my. The story about floaters and pirates. The story about floaters. Well, how do you do? Yes, I let one go. No idea. He's got his his mysterious face on. Any companion from any era could have come out with that line and you'd know exactly what they were talking about. Now, a bit of trivia. Gordon Gostolo, who plays Milo Clancy, was married to Vivian Pickles. Does that ring a bell? It does. The Avengers. Fit contact warheads to the Martian missiles. That's really nice film work. Moral shots there, for, they were lovely actually. Yes, the Avengers, uh, Betty Smythe and Charmers. She was the one with the terrible, terrible mask over the top of her head, wasn't she? Yes, that's the one. Uh, but just looking at IMDb, I know her best uh, as Mrs. Courtenay from a series in the 90s called Chef. She was a turkey farmer. Are you familiar with Chef? I am, and I remember thinking it was quite... It's Lenny Henry, wasn't it? It was. I, I remember thinking it was quite fun. The first two um, series were done on film with uh, orchestral music. The third series was done on video in front of a studio audience with electronic music and was terrible. So that's an example of where production values can really destroy something. Yes, and then repeat the process with each section and so on until we... Patrick Trout apparently was really unhappy with this. Went home and complained to his uh, wife and children that people would be switching off in droves because it's two episodes in and they were still stuck in the spaceship set. They might have had a point. 6.8 million people tuned in for this one, but 5.3 by episode 6. Don't be such a pessimist. 
there have been other stories where there have been a good two, maybe three episodes where the, the main characters have been stuck somewhere and haven't ended up at the main focus of the, the story. See, for all the slightly silly costumes, the sets are really good. I believe that Cal Clancy has connected And on the, the basis of this, I wouldn't actually mind going back to listen to the audio version of this story. Which I hear are pretty well worked out. They used to say this planet was worked out. But you took over the Argonite holdings from your father and split away from Clancy. Yes. And now you run the most successful Argonite mining business in the galaxy. You see, this is quite compelling. It is, but it's also quite expositional. (laughs) Yeah, and and you ignore the exposition and the really silly costumes and that terrible whatever it is she's wearing on her head. And it's two actors who really know what they're doing, doing exactly that. Jack May has got a fantastic voice. Looks like a cat's cradle, which is kind of series six overall, really. Patrick Troughton is just amazing. <laughs> Any scene, he just lights it up. Yes, they've forgotten the second half of her costume. Yeah, haven't they? Hello. I think I I might prefer that over the spangly cat suit. What was she in before this that made her wear that? Oh, doesn't he look like the um, Ice Warrior? The Ice Marshal? Yes. See, for all the criticisms this story gets, look at how many sets they've had just in one episode. It's really compelling. There's the spaceship where the Doctor and the Companions are. There's Milo Clancy's ship. There's the control room that they've been to. There's this room that he's talking to uh, Space Hair Woman in. And there's also a sort of um, a minuscule set for the pilot on the screen. Health and safety would have had a field day with that. Sparks flying around everywhere and her hair covered in lacquer. Oh, pew pew. Not a particularly exciting ending. No, Milo Clancy steps through after cutting the uh, door open and uh, pew pew, Jamie's unconscious. Or dead, we just don't know. We can have a fairly safe guess. Peter Bryant and I understand this was his last story as a producer. Well, what did we think of that? I really enjoyed that, actually. Space Pirates is one of those stories that's always had a a reputation for being a bit shit. But actually, I I think it's like Web of Fear was or Any of the Enemy of the World was, where there was only one surviving episode and you don't really get to see what the story was like. And when you actually get to see the story, it's pretty good. I suspect the Space Pirates would be like that where we ever get to see it. 
Well, it's as I said earlier, it's galvanised me to go and listen to the audio version of that. I really enjoyed it. And for all that people have criticised it, based on one episode, you're doing it a bit of a disservice. I don't remember the audio being that dull either. So, well, it's one that we're going to have to pour it over to Oral Intercourse at some point and do a full, uh, regrettably, a full story on that. Yes. Episode two is actually, it was found in 1999 again as an off-air recording it was somebody who had been a tv engineer and had built his own recording apparatus well apparently to date that is the oldest known surviving example of an off-air recording of doctor who yeah just Um, because it was one that exists i remember all the excitement about it at the time and then steve roberts announcing the fact that yes there had been off-air recordings in 1969, and unfortunately it was Space Pirates 2, which already existed. But I, I remember all the drama on the... Uh, on the message what, boards? What they used to be... Usenet. I, I remember oh, all the drama crikey, on the yes. Usenet boards. It's the uh, first story for John Nathan Turner. He was employed as a floor assistant. And he does mention this in his memoirs. He says there were a lot of going up and down in lifts fetching people. So his his first experience of Doctor Who wasn't particularly enjoyable. But on the whole, I'm sure they were quite glad to get rid of Lime Grove. Nobody speaks fondly about it at all. So yes, um, Mm. that was Space Pirates, Episode 2. And like we've both said, much more enjoyable than people give it credit for. And I suspect, like Simon, if it turned up, it would be reappraised as something a little bit less unwatchable than it's given credit for now. Yeah. And with that, our little 2021 scrapbook is at an end. Hope you found something in there to educate, entertain and inform. We've got plenty already recorded for 2022, including Star Maidens, Planet of the Daleks, the Quatermass Experiment movie, another volume of sitcoms and a Brexit finale. Next time we bring you the third in our trilogy of podcasts with the boys from a Peggy Mount Calamity Hour, in which we'll be ripping apart a Tomorrow People reboot from the 1990s. Until then, from myself and Dr. Exton, thank you so much for listening. Ta-ta! The Exton Moss Experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss. All featured soundtracks are the property of their respective producers, and no infringement of copyright is intended. Title music was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra, and the programme was produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit maverickproductionsuk.blogspot.com or find us on social media.